According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. Hebrews 13. Last week we were looking at verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. This morning we're moving on to verse 8. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Oh, what a coincidence. Imagine. Maybe that was planned for singing that hymn just now. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment of silent prayer to quiet our hearts, to confess any sin that needs to be dealt with, to humble ourselves under the authority of God's truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together in this place at this time. Father, we thank you and we do pray for our nation and the quarantine circumstances that still continue in other places and more so than here in Texas. And thank you for the freedom that uh, has been extended, that is growing more and more with each passing day. We do pray for our nation, not only for the uh, coronavirus and the issues there, but also Father, we're under a time of darkness with rioting and death. It's a a sad thing, Father, but you are still in control. Your son controls history. We pray for our president, our governor, our mayor, for all those in authority over us, Father, that you would grant them wisdom to make right decisions and to, uh, to accomplish your purpose. Father, now this morning we do look to our Savior, fixing our eyes on Jesus yesterday, today, forever. Father, thank you for his eternality and for our eternal life in him. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so, uh, yes, we spent uh, Sunday on verse 7. We're going to spend a Sunday on verse 8. I don't anticipate spending a Sunday on every single verse from now to the end of the book, uh, that uh, we are closer to the end of the book than we realize. Uh, And as I say this, with 17 more verses to go, um, but we are also eager to not only wrap this up, but then also to get our our start on Genesis, which will be the study after this. I do suspect, though, too, we're going to have a, maybe a month's worth of review to, uh, to recap a three-year study uh, to at least give the, the big picture of what these 13 chapters are, because it might be we've already forgotten what the rest was all about in chapters 1 through 5 and uh, some of those other issues there. So anyway, be in prayer for that, and that uh, the Lord would, would put these things together for us. This is a chapter that has all, uh, a lot of imperatives. In a, in a sense, the, the theological treatise ended with chapter 12. And in a sense, uh, we have a, a great theological treatise that comprises chapter 1 through 12. And it's different than any other book of the New Testament. It's not strictly speaking an epistle like Paul's epistles to the church at Colossae or the church at Rome or so forth. It is a theological treatise. It starts with a glorious statement of, of, of Christ in verses 1 through 4. And, and it really concludes in verse 12, our God is a consuming fire. The exhortation then that closes out chapter 12 could be thought of as, a, as an exhortation to close the book, to close uh, a treatise, if you will, a theological treatise. So as it says in 1228, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, 
for our God is a consuming fire. And that would be a marvelous close to the book, except that the Holy Spirit inspired uh, one final chapter really as a personal letter, as uh, some personal exhortations to the assembly that was receiving this epistle, as well as some private notes uh, that we'll pick up by the end of this chapter. We're going to see, you know, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. And so there's a little glimpse that uh, Timothy followed his mentor's footsteps, the Apostle Paul, and having a, a jail record of his own in his own day and age after Paul departs, and, uh, and so forth. Likewise, there's greetings that are extended, and those from Italy greet you. That's a personal word that comes at the end of the book. So we can be thankful that we have really chapter 13 here called A Brief Word of Exhortation, where the great theological treatise gets personal and gets addressed to the recipients directly. And there's a, a chain of commands, like let the love of the brethren continue and don't neglect hospitality and remember the prisoners and uh, honor marriage, don't defile the marriage bed, uh, be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And it's just command after command after command after command. And there will be more that follow. Uh, for example, in verse 9, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. And um, then uh, there's going to be more commands starting in verse 15. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise and uh, do not neglect doing good and sharing. Obey your leaders. That's a verse I like preaching. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Um, Pray for us. I urge you all the more. And so we have a chapter that's full of, of these imperatives, full of these commands, but occasionally we have a break. And, and this is one such break in a sense. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And it seems like a, an odd duck. Like, where did this come from? How did this verse just land here? But it's really not. It's a, it's a marvelous follow-up to obey your leaders. And we'll show you that here in a moment. And, uh, and imitate their faith. That's the yesterday and the today that, uh, that we address in verse 8. And it forms a nice bridge by fixing our eyes on Jesus. It then forces a nice, uh, it focuses our attention on not only yesterday and today, but what are we going to be doing for all eternity with our Lord and our Savior? And uh, the exhortation that follows, I think, touches on that as well. So let me advance the slide then to what we're dealing with today. Here we go. And get past that and get past that. Fornication and adultery, we talked about that. Here we are. Philadelphia, Philizenia, followed up by Ophelagoras, not loving money. There we go. This is what we were dealing with last week. Those who taught you, those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Notice those are parallel. If you're not speaking the word of God, you're not leading your flock. And it's, uh, they are inseparable. Church leadership is primarily focused on communicating the Word of God. And uh, then secondly, faith imitation includes both words and deeds. Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So that's both words and deeds. Now, this is what then leads into verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we're going to reorder those words for you because that's not the order that we have it in the Greek sentence. You say, well, what matter does it make? I mean, why, why does it make a difference? Uh, Greek is not a word order language, so who cares what order the, uh, the words are in? That's exactly the point. You're missing the point, actually, when you say that. 
Greek is not a word order language. And so they are free to put things in whatever order they want to put them in. And generally speaking, when they do that, it's to emphasize what they want to emphasize and to set something apart that needs to be set apart. And so we can't do that in English. You know, we have to, we, we're dependent upon our word order for the subject, for the verb, for the object. We're, and if we, if we swap the order around, it makes all the difference in the world, right? You know, I mean, you, 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 the subject has to precede the verb and the, and the object has to follow the verb. And if you swap those around, you just turn the sentence upside down. So, and that's obvious, right? We all get that. You know what I'm talking about? So if, if, uh, if I go to the nursery and if I change the baby's diaper, that's the, that's the sentence. But if the baby changes my diaper, wait a minute. What just happened there? Why did we change those words around? If we change those words around, now all of a sudden we have a problem. Well, in the Greek, we're changing the words around and doing so for a very interesting reason because the actual order of the, of the uh, words here, Jesus Christ, the name Jesus Christ comes first, yesterday and today the same, and also forever, okay? The forever is set apart, and it's set apart separately to be thought of separately from the yesterday and the today. The yesterday and the today are linked together. So this is the order of what we're looking at. I'll I'll bring it up for you here and we can see it together. Hebrews 13, 7. No, 8. Hebrews 13, 8. And uh, here we go. So you can see the Greek column there on the right, Jesus Christos. Those are the first two words, Jesus Christ. Ekthes kai semeron, yesterday and today. Ha autos, the same. So that's the word order. Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, the same. And also, or even, aistus ionos, unto the ages. That's the idiom for ever. Unto the ages. The ages without end. Amen. All right. So Jesus Christ, yesterday and today the same, and also forever. That's the word order. Why that word order? Why highlight the yesterday and today and then set apart the forever as something different? And what exactly are we talking about? Is this simply another defense of the deity of Christ? Is this something we point to to prove that Jesus was more than a man, that uh, he is actually God in the flesh, that he has eternally been God the Son who created the universe and, uh, and so forth? It's very commonly used that way and, and, or, or understood that way. And I think a lot of times we sing the hymn, Yesterday, Today, Forever, and in our mind, what are we thinking? We're thinking about the totality of eternal life of God, that he's always been here, always will be here, that he's immutable, that he does not change. And theologically, we're not wrong to think those thoughts. However, we are not exactly lined up with what this verse is actually celebrating. Because this verse, and I'm going to show it to you here, it is a temporal to eternal affirmation. Temporal, yesterday, today to eternal, even unto forever. It is a temporal to eternal affirmation. In contrast to what we usually think of it as, 
in contrast to an eternal to temporal to eternal affirmation. Okay? And I'm going I'm to draw pictures. I'm going to Panama. I'm going to walk you through this here this morning. In fact, I won't let you leave until you get this. Okay? Because we have those also in Scripture. And Hebrews actually does use them in, uh, in, in very early. In Hebrews chapter 1, quoting Psalm 102, uh, there is a statement of the eternality of God the Son and the eternality of God, who has always been, who is now, and who always will be. Probably the best statement of, of this is found in Jude. So let's look at that first. I'm going to take my slide slightly out of order here. But Jude 25... The last verse in Jude. I guess I'll back up to 24 and 25 here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. We discussed this uh, not too long ago in our Colossians class that this is... uh, we often is thought of as being dying and going to heaven, being presented before him once we're dead uh, and, and standing before him. But it shouldn't be limited to that, that we are presented before him all day, every day. This morning we're presented before him. We're presenting before him as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we're presented before him right now. Is he not right now able to keep us from stumbling? In fact, that makes more sense in the here and now than it does after we die and, and face him in, in heaven. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Now notice this phrase. Before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. You see that? That is eternity. That is everything. That is eternity past, temporal present, eternity future before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. We follow that sentence, we follow that concept, okay? Similar to what we do with the um, plan of God chart. Remember this? We have time across the top, and what's to the left and right of time? What What was before time? What's after time? You see, we realize that time, this created dimension of time, is a created thing that hasn't always been here. Space-time is something that wasn't always around. God created it. So we have eternity past. Then we have eternity future. And in between eternity past and eternity future is now. (laughs) It's a very big now, but it's not that big compared to eternity past, eternity future. You know, so it's a few thousand years. What's that compared to eternity past, eternity future? And so every moment, from the alpha moment to the omega moment, and every other moment in between is what we call time. That's the now. So what we just read in Jude is very much in line with this. Whoops, I've got to get better at this. Do that, and then do that. So what we just read in Jude 25 is this statement It is an eternal to temporal to eternal affirmation. That's what we have in Jude. Eternally past, temporal present, eternally future. That's not Hebrews 13.8. 
That's not yesterday, today, forever. Because yesterday is temporal. Yesterday is not forever in the past. Okay? Now, some people try to make it that way. In fact, there will be people that, that insist upon that as the only way to understand Hebrews 13.8. But the term yesterday that we have here is only used three times in, in all the New Testament, and the other two times is, means yesterday. It means the day before. And uh, it doesn't mean for all eternity in the past. There are expressions like before yesterday or before the, the yesterday. There's idioms that can use yesterday, but usually combined with other pronouns, other prepositions to speak of long time in the past. And the author of Hebrews is very used to using those. In fact, that's how he started the book. So let's, uh, let's remind ourselves. What we have here is not eternal to temporal to eternal. You understand what I'm talking about there? What we have here in Hebrews 13 is a temporal to eternal affirmation. Because the yesterday and today are both in time. They're temporal. But they are looking forward to eternity. And that's what we should be. You and I should be. Because you and I are temporal, looking forward to eternity. You and I had a beginning. We had a physical birth beginning and we had a spiritual birth beginning. And we're looking forward to forever. And because we're born again, our physical birth may have a physical death, but a a future resurrection will overcome that. And then forever. Our spiritual birth had a beginning, and it never ends. It has no death. There is no spiritual death. Once you're born again, you're born again. And so we are temporal moving forward. And that's what this verse is. Yesterday, today are temporal. And that's why they're set apart from the forever statement. That's why the word order is Jesus Christ yesterday and today the same. And also forever. And also forever. Now, let's uh, remind ourselves of some of these earlier passages here in Hebrews so that you get the sense that this is not alone. This is not an odd duck. This, uh, this is actually very consistent with everything that the author of Hebrews has been saying uh, to his readers. Going all the way back to chapter 1. Remember the sweeping introduction to the theological treatise. And I hope we get this, because this, uh, this is important. All right. God, after he spoke long ago. There's a, there's a term that speaks more than just a day ago, that speaks of a long age in the past. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in, in many portions and in many ways, what we would call the Old Testament, okay? And the Old Testament, that was way back when. Long ago, he spoke to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. In these last days... In the last of these days, literally, in the last of these days, in other words, much more recent, very much close to our proximity. Not, we didn't hear directly, but we heard from those who heard. So it's a closer proximity. It's like a yesterday. In the last of these days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
And so the entrance of Jesus Christ into the world, the, the first Advent ministry of our Savior was momentous. That when, when God the Son became man and when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that we have God choosing to function with us in our finite limitations. That He operated with us in the bounds of time. In the, in the human limitations that we have. Being monopresent. And, uh, and, and moving forward one day at a time, day by day, not functioning in the, in the glories of deity that he was entitled to, but under kenosis, laying aside the privileges that he would otherwise be able to offer, to, to, to operate in. So in the last of these days, has spoken to us in his son. Now that's not to deny, of course, that he preceded that, that he was around from eternity past. In fact, this verse even mentions through whom he made the world, through whom he, he fashioned the ages. So the author of Hebrews is very well aware of, of God the Son's pre-existent eternality. He's not oblivious to, to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being eternal life forever. He's very much aware of that. But what he wants to stress is the temporal, present the yesterday and the today where Jesus Christ is actively involved in the things of the church. Remember those who led you. That was yesterday. And Jesus Christ, the same, the same Jesus Christ, was working with those who led you. And the same Jesus Christ is working with you today. See? So this is why we're not intimidated. This is why Joshua is not intimidated to follow Moses. Because Jesus said, I'm with you. This is why, you know, Bob Bolander is not intimidated to follow Ralph Braun. Because the ministry Ralph had was because Jesus Christ was with him. The same Jesus Christ was with Ralph. And the same Jesus Christ is with me. And the same Jesus Christ will be with whoever follows me and who follows them. And, and you see how this works. Because it's there, it's yesterday and it's today, and it's never going to stop. It's forever. It is also forever. So we get to have this forever viewpoint looking forward. Okay? This forever viewpoint looking forward. All right. So we read chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, we see additional indicators here in chapter 2 and verse 3. This is a warning text. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. And so we recognize that the author of Hebrews was not himself an eyewitness. The author of Hebrews was not himself one of Jesus' apostles. And even Paul would be counted among them because Paul himself received his revelation from Jesus Christ directly. And so we realize this is now the next generation moving forward. That the author of, of Hebrews learned from Paul who's now able to send the information to the, uh, the readers of this epistle. And we've discussed this. But here's the emphasis. It's not looking back to eternity past. It's looking to the advent of Jesus Christ, the birth of the church, that's the yesterday and the today. The yesterday and the today. 
You see, these guys can be confident. They're not following some myths. They're not following some cleverly made up tales. That they've received the gospel. They've received the good news from those who saw it in Jesus Christ himself. In the lifetime of these eyewitnesses. The entire New Testament was written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And this is key. This is the yesterday and the today. This is the temporal emphasis that comes in the yesterday and today. Jesus Christ the same. But then it's going to turn to the future. And it's going to fix our eyes on the forever. That we can be forever minded. All right. Chapter 5 and verse 7. Another indicator. Talking about the days of His flesh. In the days of His flesh. What a phrase. We've discussed this. This is the incarnation. The days of His flesh. When the Word became flesh. He's always been God the Son. But this moment of time when He became flesh when He walked among us and we beheld His glory. In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His piety. The emphasis again is not on the eternity past of God the Son, but on the physical life, earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. In other words, yesterday and today. It's a temporal emphasis that then goes from temporal to eternity future. And so it is significant. Yesterday and today, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, the same. That's the word order. Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, the same and forever. Okay? Now, so this makes it a temporal to eternal affirmation. In contrast to an eternal to temporal to eternal affirmation. Which, by the way, the the author of Hebrews is capable of doing if he so chooses. He did so in chapter 1 and verse 12 when he was quoting Psalm 102. Oops, Hebrews 1.12. Like a mantle you will roll them up, like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. Alright? In fact, you can back up even more. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. So God's always been here. The Bible assumes this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God exists. God is. He's assumed to be here to create the heavens and the earth. And so, uh, anyway, that's Psalm 102 and the author is quoting it. And the author is very familiar with the eternal nature of Jesus Christ in the past, but he's not going to stress that in most of the book. In most of the book, the emphasis is the first advent ministry of Jesus Christ and now what it produces for us today. The fact that he did what he did allows us to do what we do. That we can have our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. That we can enter into rest in Christ. That all of this provision in Hebrews is because of what he accomplished in his first advent, having ascended to the Father's right hand and seated at the Father's right hand. He entered within the veil as a forerunner for us. The whole book of Hebrews is about what Jesus did, how awesome he is. Better than the angels, better than Aaron, better than the Levitical priesthood, better than anything that came before. All of that was preparing the way for Jesus and what he did in his first advent. And based on that, we now live our lives. 
We're in Him looking forward to being with Him forever. And this is what we're looking forward to. All right. So again, the word order is Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, the same and forever. You can even put an also in there. Also forever, even forever. Might be useful to do something different with the second chi than the first chi, just to uh, recognize there's two chi's in that sentence. The yesterday and today, but then there's the and forever that we have to deal with. All right? Remember, deity is eternal, but humanity was begotten. Deity is eternal, but humanity was begotten. There are, there are some uh, problematic views of God the Son that have haunted the church since day one, really, since the beginning. Some huge Christological battles that, that uh, resolved themselves in various church councils ended up producing the Nicene Creed. <laughs> other, uh, other arguments about who exactly Jesus Christ was. Passages that centered on Hebrews, passages that centered on Colossians, passages that centered on, by the way, Proverbs 8. And when Athanasius and Arius were arguing Proverbs 8, it's curious to me, they were arguing from a poor Septuagint translation rather than arguing from the Hebrew text of Proverbs 8 which I think would have solved things easier and would have given us a different Nicene Creed, but that's okay. (laughs) Now, deity is eternal, but humanity was begotten. And this is where, you know, we can relax if, if we have brothers and sisters that differ from us a little bit. As long as we recognize that humanity is not eternal, we're fine. That, uh, you know, that God the Father doesn't have humanity and God the Holy Spirit doesn't have humanity. Only God the Son has a human nature. Only God the Son has humanity. So you, by definition, this is, this is theologically certain, you cannot make humanity an eternal feature. That would make it a divine feature. If God the Son was always human from eternity past, then He would have been a different kind of God from the Father and the Holy Spirit. So He is the same God with the Father and the Holy Spirit, co-equal in essence, in attributes, in nature, Three persons in one God. This is, this is fundamental to Trinity. But humanity was begotten later at a point of time. In fact, I call it the Alpha moment. The very first thing that came into existence that was not God Himself was the begotten humanity of Jesus Christ. The Alpha moment of time when the Father begat Jesus and said, You are my Son, today I have begotten thee. So deity is eternal, but humanity was begotten. Jesus' humanity experienced change. See, some of you, when you're singing the hymn, maybe you had a yeah, but moment when you wanted to say, yeah, but. Okay, yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. He never changes. He never changes, huh? Well, what about the babe in the manger? Because the babe in the manger didn't go to the cross. That was some kind of a change, right? He grew up. The babe in the manger, the boy at 12 in the temple, the man on the cross, He went through those changes, didn't he? Okay. Again, this is kind of another indicator that this passage is not eternal to temporal to eternal. This passage is actually temporal to eternal. Speaking about our victorious risen Savior and the ministry he's had yesterday and today. Remember those who led you and know who's walking with you today. 
That's the yesterday and the today. Jesus' humanity experienced change. He was made flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh. The verb is genomai. It's a verb of becoming. It's becoming something you were not before. It is a change. Anytime you become something you were not before, something changed. Because you weren't that before. You know, you get married, now you're a married man, something changed. You became married. That's, that's, a, that's a change. That's something new. The Word became flesh. The Word was not eternally flesh. He was made flesh. It's spoken of in John 1.14. It's spoken of in Hebrews 5.7. We saw that a little bit ago. It's called in the days of His flesh. In the days of His flesh. Also, here's a phrase. He was made both Lord and Christ in Acts 2.36. And this is worth a, a whole month of sermons all by itself, but uh, Peter's sermon on, Pente- on the day of Pentecost is um, it's such a foundational sermon because it's, it's the first one. They receive the Holy Spirit. The church age begins. There's a crowd in town saying, what's going on here? Hearing all these languages, thinking everybody's drunk. And Peter says, we're not drunk. It's too early for that. And he says, uh, what you're seeing, what you're, what you're observing is the Holy Spirit. And then he preaches. And what does he preach? He preaches Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again. And he gives a marvelous sermon, the conclusion to which is here in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay? And without going into all the details of what the sermon was really about and other things with it, and whether, you know, tongues was the fulfillment of Joel 2, it was not, okay? There's all kinds of things we can do with this chapter. All I'm focusing in on is the change. He, the, that God the Father made him both Lord and Christ. He wasn't always Christ. Christ is the anointed one. Well, who anointed him? When did he anoint him? See, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son was not eternally anointed, but he was anointed like he was begotten, like he was made flesh, like he was... These are the various past changes in uh, the humanity of Jesus Christ. He was made Lord and Christ. And then they crucified him. (laughs) Okay, and uh, you can imagine at that moment you're going to have a, oops, what do we do now? So when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? (laughs) They say, wow, because they're convinced. They are persuaded that Jesus is both Lord and Christ and the Jewish people crucified him. Now what do we do? And so... This is where repent and be baptized. That's where this imperative is given. It's not evangelism for you and me today. But it is a Pentecost message for the Jews that crucified the Christ. That, uh, that they need to enter the church age and realize their kingdom has been delayed. That the kingdom is not returning anytime soon. That they need to uh, change their thinking regarding to the person of Christ. 
and then be baptized to identify with Christ entering into the church age. Anyway, that's a whole different sermon there. You know what else he became? He became much better than the angels and inherited a more excellent name, Hebrews 1.4. Having become as much better than the angels. Remember for a while he lowered himself? He made himself lower than the angels? This is what kenosis, this is why he was born in the manger. This is why he walked the earthly walk. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, but then he became as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today have begotten thee. None of them. Or I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, there's so much here. Anyway, these are the becomings. We have becoming statements of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. He was made both Lord and Christ. He, has be- he became much better than the angels and inherited a more excellent name. And so, yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. He is the same. Yesterday, today, and forevermore. He has not always been what He is now. But that was before yesterday. You see what I'm saying? Okay, That was before yesterday. That was before His incarnation. That was before His first advent. But because of His first advent and because of His victory at the cross, now we can say, yesterday and today, Jesus the same. In fact, the same Jesus as head of the church today. 21st century American Christianity has the same Jesus Christ head of the church. He walks in the midst of this lampstand, holds this star in his right hand, just like he did in the first century with all the churches we read about in the New Testament. The same Jesus Christ. Isn't that better than apostolic succession? (laughs) Isn't that better with, well, I was ordained by Ralph, who was ordained by uh, Pentecost, who was ordained by Schaefer, who was ordained by... um, uh, who was Schaefer ordained by? Uh, Schofield. Schofield, yeah. Who was ordained by? Nobody knows. Who was ordained by? And then we have to track it all the way back to Peter if it's going to count for anything. <laughs> the Roman Catholics tell you if you don't have the Catholic ordination, it doesn't count. You've got to have that descent from, from Peter. Okay? Well, none of that. All, you'll read about that in church history. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ the same. Yesterday and today. Jesus Christ, head of the church, today, the same head of the church for the Hebrew epistle recipients, the same head of the church for the, the, the lampstand in Colossae that Paul uh, and Epaphras were writing to, the same head of the church, yesterday and today, the same, and forever moving forward, and forever moving forward. All right, so... His humanity has had quite a bit of change, but not anymore. Yesterday and today, the same Jesus Christ did not fail or forsake those who led you or you. That's the emphasis on the yesterday and today. Yesterday and today. This is where we kind of combine verse 7 with verse 8. Hebrews 13, 7 and 8, we put these together. 
In fact, there you can see both in the same box. Remember those who led you? That's yesterday. And it was the same Jesus Christ who did not fail them nor forsake them. That's what he promised. We were told that in the, even the, the verse before this, to be content with what you have, for I will neither leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise there. What will man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember verse 5? Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So, what a blessing that Jesus Christ the same. You know, that promise is only good so long as God doesn't change. (laughs) Same thing with our eternal life. He who believes in me has eternal life. So long as I don't change my mind about it and decide, you know, I'm sick of that. Goodbye. (laughs) God never changes. Okay? Jesus, yesterday, today, forever, the same Jesus. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Anyway, that's the same faithfulness. He was faithful to the generation before us. He's been faithful in our generation. And doesn't this give you some hope for, you know, these, we, we, we love these little babies we have around here. They're cute as anything. But can you imagine the world they were born into? And now we get riots and fires and there's all kinds of craziness and there's coronaviruses going around. And I mean, there's just crazy things. And you wonder, what kind of world are they going to grow up in? Well, they're going to grow up in a world where Jesus Christ remains head of the church. And they're going to abide in Christ. They're filled already. They are the fullness. That's what we're studying in the Colossians class last hour. And so these things are, are marvelous uh, blessings to, to dwell upon, to think about. And so, um, yesterday and today, the same Jesus Christ did not fail or forsake those who led you, and he didn't fail or forsake you, and he never will. Testifying to the sight-observable past and present gives weight to the faith-observable eternity future. Remember, we walk by faith and not by sight. Nevertheless, the things we do see (laughs) help. (laughs) The things we do see are blessings to identify. So the the sight observable past and present. The sight observable past and present. And it's a joy. If you have this in your heritage, now not everybody does, but my parents were believers and I'm eternally thankful for that. That's my sight observable past past because I remember when they were alive and I remember when we would go to church as a family I would remember singing together as a family I would remember it was always the priority and if our family was weird because we always had dinner at 5 o'clock why do you eat dinner so early? because we're getting to Bible class by 7 o'clock how about that? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night things were serious back in the back in the 70s Baraka didn't mess around and neither did a lot of other churches. Anyway, that's the sight observable past. And you can testify that God never abandoned them, never left them or deserted them or forsake, forsook them. And that's, uh, it gives weight. It's, uh, it's just a, a little extra boost 
to the faith-observable eternity future. Even Jesus quoted this on the cross. He said, uh, you have been my God from my youth. In you our fathers trusted and were not disappointed. Jesus was citing Psalm 22 while he was hanging on the cross, using the sight-observable past in his confident prayers for the future. The faith-observable eternity future. Remember, what is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. So we can see things in our earthly eyes and then faith takes it from there. We can see with our spiritual eyes things that aren't observable in, uh, to humanity. So that's Hebrews 11.1. 1. 2 Corinthians 4.18 and 5.7. Here we go. I'll start with verse 16, Hebrews 4, 16, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Isn't that beautiful? What does an unbeliever do that doesn't know this truth? <laughs> he just gets old and groans, and what's, what's to do with that? You know, I mean... If this world is all there is, if this life is all there is, it's downhill from here. I tell you, it won't be getting any better without Christ, without eternal life. Your best days are behind you, okay? But with Christ and eternal life, we haven't seen nothing yet. The, the glory is yet to be revealed. And so we don't lose heart. The inner man is renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And we have the spiritual eyes to see that. The unbeliever doesn't and the carnal believer doesn't. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Keep your eyes on the unseen. Don't lose sight of what you can't see. (laughs) Okay? Keep looking at what is invisible and we're equipped to do so by faith. This is the spiritual eyesight that we have in Christ. When we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. There's that word I keep using. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So you and I had a temporal beginning and we're headed for no end ever. An eternity future. Jesus Christ, when he became flesh, he limited himself to a physical beginning. And he lived that life in victory. And he rose again and he ascended to the Father. So Jesus Christ in the flesh had a temporal beginning and now an eternal forever like you and I have. So the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. You get past, uh, this is the end of chapter 4, and you go down a few more verses in chapter 5, and you revisit this, talking about, you know, the body we have now is just an earthly tent. You, you won't be sad. You won't miss it. <laughs> you won't be sad to move out. When it's torn down, you'll be like, man, glad that thing's gone. Because the new one is so much better. 
We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You know, there is nobody that gets to be face to face with Jesus Christ that regrets leaving the body behind. Okay? And so we groan, longing to be clothed. Anyway, verse 5 says, He who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. So this life is a preparation. We have a temporal life of preparation for eternity. Jesus had a temporal life preparing him for eternity. Why he was equipped to be our high priest. Why he was equipped to be the mediator of the new covenant. Why he's equipped to be the, uh, the head of the church. You think Jesus could have been head of the church today if he was a, a loser flake back then? Okay. Now, preparation equips you for what God has. So therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. There it is. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Combine it with 4.18, and I think you got a, you got a good picture there. Combine it with Hebrews 11.1, 1, you got a great picture there. Testifying to the sight-observable past. The past and present. This is why, it's, again, it's useful. Put yesterday and today in one context, and then look to forever after that. The yesterday and today is one context, and then the forever looking forward. What a joy. And that's what we get to do here. All right. And also forever, the same Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our eternal confession. When does the Melchizedek priesthood expire? When, uh, when do we stop being priests? Never. Okay. Now the Levitical priesthood was obsolete, uh, growing old, ready to disappear. But is the Melchizedek priesthood ever going to be obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear? No. No, never. No, never alone. All right? The same Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our eternal confession. Hebrews 3.1, apostle and high priest. This is where we are. We have a head, we have an apostle, we have a high priest. We have all these expressions communicating how the church orients to Jesus Christ. Every generation of the church will be united by a resurrection and rapture for our eternal glory with Jesus Christ. Every generation of the church will be united. You know, I mentioned the memories I have of my parents and the memories that I have of former pastors. Memories I have of, of uh, Ralph Braun and, and uh, Glenn Carnegie and John Eichmann and Ken Jensen and R.B. Theme. And, and some of these guys are still with us and, and more and more of them are going to heaven or already there. But uh, what about uh, my, my, all, the, all my fond memories of Lewis Berry Schaefer? I never had fond memories. I never met him. Okay? He died in 1953 and I wasn't born then. Okay? Memories I have of Schofield. Memories I have of Spurgeon. Memories I have of John Calvin. Memories I have of Martin Luther. Okay? Memories I have. And we're going to get more names too as we uh, work our way through church history. <laughs> My memories with uh, Tertullian, okay? Memories with Paul and Timothy. 
Of course, I don't have those direct memories, but I have the scriptures. And you know what I'm going to have as soon as the trumpet sounds? I'm going to have an immediate fellowship with everybody. Because the whole bride is going to be together for the first time ever. Understand by the nature of how the church is constituted, how the church has been being built for 21 centuries now, okay? It's not possible for the whole church to be together until the rapture, in a sense. I mean, okay, on Pentecost, the whole church was together. (laughs) That first generation was all together. But we weren't there yet. So it wasn't a completed bride. And then they died. And then the next generation was born. And then they died and so forth. All the way to us today. However many generations that ends up being. I don't know what, what you track on that. Okay? I guess somebody could do an estimate on that. But we're going to have all the generations together when that trumpet sounds. Every generation of the church will be united by resurrection and rapture for our eternal glory with Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 This is why to me it's so sad when people don't teach the rapture or they misabuse the rapture. They turn the rapture into the second advent. They have a post-tribulational rapture. Or they do all kinds of other goofy things. Rather than the plain, normal, pre-trib rapture of the church. All right. Verse 13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Physically dead believers, yes, we have a human sadness, but we don't grieve like the hopeless unbeliever. All the hopeless unbeliever can do is just wail or grow uh, cynical in his atheism. We have, a, we have a sanctified sorrow that has value and a eternal rejoicing. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So that's not every Old Testament believer. That's not Moses and Daniel and Job and those guys. They're Old Testament saints. They're not in Jesus. They're not in Christ. But when Jesus comes at the rapture, when the trumpet sounds, it's the dead in Christ who rise first. So starting with the apostles and all the New Testament saints, every born-again believer for all church history, including Tertullian and Polycarp and Ignatius and Irenaeus and all these ones we're learning about, even including some of the, the, I I suspect, Arius was born again. He got heretical later. But I think we're going to see quite a few of the church history heretics. We'll have both Calvin and Arminius there. How about that? (laughs) And they'll stop arguing, okay? I tease, they never met. But anyway, um, the whole resurrected church, the whole resurrected church all together, the completed bride. See, Jesus has taken the whole bride with him. You don't, you don't walk away from the altar which is part of a bride. You take the whole bride. So, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus For this we say to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now see, that might be a concern if you think that those that have died already have to wait until the beginning of the millennium to get resurrected with Old Testament saints. To get resurrected at the end, the resurrection on the last day. No, we're not going to precede them into the kingdom glory. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He rose on April 5th, 33 AD, and he's been in that resurrected body of glory ever since. Those that have died in Christ will be the next. And they will rise first when the trumpet sounds, before we get transformed and snatched. First order of business is to resurrect the dead believers in Christ. Then, a split second later, (laughs) a minute later, can you imagine if there was a one minute lag? Seven second lag, whatever the lag is, okay? Somebody already noticed this morning there's a seven second lag between when I'm speaking and you hear my voice through these speakers on the wall versus when it finally gets to YouTube and back from YouTube and you hear it on your computer speakers. Okay? And if you're in the building and doing both YouTube and in the building at the same time, then you can hear both. You can hear the real me and then you can hear the YouTube me in seven seconds. Why would you do that? All right. But now I'm... I'm curious though, when it says the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain. Because there's really no time component to the then. It's just a sequence of order later, after, next. And so I suspect it's going to be a split second. I expect it's going to be a, you know, a short time. But what, what if it is an hour? You ever think about that? What if it's 24 hours? <laughs> what would happen? No, I don't think it's going to be that long. Because when, when the trumpet can't even sound until the bride's complete. And so if the bride's complete, you don't want to have too long of a gap there because then what if somebody else gets saved? All right. Um, <laughs> I think God's got a handle on this. I'm just thinking out, I'm thinking out loud now. But the reason why I wonder is because sitting in my office are the, are the urns of, of my parents. Mom's got an urn, dad's got an urn. It sits on a little heart-shaped th- display thing, a little Valentine heart shape and an urn on each, each bubble of the heart there. Anyway, if the dead in Christ, or well, the dead in Christ rise first, so if the trumpet sounds while well, I'm in my office studying and doing whatever, I'm going to look to my right and mom and dad are going to be standing there. And then whatever length of time later, probably just enough for me to comprehend, wow, what are you doing here? <laughs> then, uh, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. By the way, you've got to combine this with 1 Corinthians because Thessalonians doesn't tell you about the transformation in the twinkling of an eye where we are changed. Corinthians tells us that, but Corinthians doesn't tell us about the snatching. It's Thessalonians that tells us about the snatching. So we have to combine these passages to get the entire thing. I'm running out of time. I don't want you to miss the point, though. In verse 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. I tell you, underline that, highlight that, color that, copy that down, write that on your refrigerator. Um, We shall always be with the Lord. From the, from the trumpet onward. Where will we ever be away from the Lord after that? No, it's, we will always be with the Lord. This is why partial rapture is so wrong. This is why 
Um, some of the flawed views of weeping and gnashing of teeth are so wrong. We're not going to go to the outer darkness and some kind of a probationary thing missing out on the rapture because we shall always be with the Lord. That's the promise. All right, stay tuned. We'll have more on that in future classes. Yesterday, Jesus Christ, the same. Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, the same. And forever. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this study. I pray that we we truly appreciate our place in the body and bride of Jesus Christ, that we are in our generation accomplishing your good pleasure. And Father, we would love to be the rapture generation, but if not, then I pray that we serve our purpose and glorify you, and I pray that we train up the next generation so that they can be the rapture generation. And yet, however long it takes and whatever generation it happens in, Jesus Christ the same will be head of the church, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He will never leave them nor forsake them like he never leaves us or forsakes us. These are, these are precious promises, Father, and we, we, uh, we love to learn them and we love to live them. So might we uh, take hold, Father, I ask that you take hold of this teaching and impress it upon each one of us that we... Uh, that we know it, that we know it fully, that we embrace the wealth of it, all for the glory of your, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.